If you have a Bible, go ahead and open that Bible to Revelation chapter 19. We're going to finish off this chapter looking at verses 11 through 21. It's a picture of Jesus that we don't normally get, at least not yet in Scripture. As we've been moving, if you think of Scripture leading up to the saving work of Christ, His incarnation, His death on the cross, His resurrection, we see elements and aspects of, of what we'll see here in this passage, but, but this passage is very unique view of the person and work of Christ. And we're going to wrestle with that today and hopefully be encouraged and strengthened in our faith as we see the rider on a white horse fulfilling God's purposes. So let's go ahead and turn our attention, our focus, our thoughts to hear Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. As we come to this passage, it is striking, overwhelming, bewildering, and we need you to help us be greatly encouraged. So help us to see here in the person and work of King Jesus, the one who would rescue us, right all the wrongs, bring about your good purposes, and may that encourage our faith. We ask in Christ's name, amen. There's an incredible scene in the Old Testament book, Joshua, that details an overwhelming moment for God's people and his instructions to them to not be afraid. This particular scene is found in Joshua 10, a coalition of kings and armies gathered to defeat Joshua and the people of God, outnumbered by a force of five armies that were way more equipped then the people of God, God yet still says to them, do not fear. Verse 8 of Joshua 10. 
And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. And then, as Joshua 10 unfolds, we see that God himself took up the fight for his people. In verses 13 and 14 is an incredible moment. I don't understand it, but here's what it says. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man and the Lord fought for Israel. God takes up the fight for his people. Revelation 19 is a glimpse ahead to that final fight, the fight that ends all fights. And here we see again the Lord take up the ultimate fight for his people. And as we consider that together, this is to strengthen our faith, our faith in the here and now, that God takes up our fight. And when we do that, we find that our faith is strengthened when we look to the person and work of Jesus Christ. This passage in Revelation 19 is a series of comparisons of what's been going on in the letter. There are three comparisons in our chapter to consider together. The first is around the idea that the person of Jesus Christ is glorious. We're going to compare Jesus with something else in Revelation. The second one is going to lead us to see that the work of Jesus Christ is victorious. That it's victorious. And and we're going to compare that with something else that we find in Revelation and this third one, and I'm sorry, I've tried really hard, hard to find a third aureus word. There just aren't enough. There's one that's raptorious, which actually is a little too on the nose. It's about winged animals that have sort of raptor fangs and claws that can catch their prey, which, again, the way that Revelation 19 ends, I guess we could say that our faith is raptorious, but again, I don't think Linda would have appreciated that in ASL, and I don't think you all would be appreciating that either, as it's a little too on the nose. So anyway, the person and work of Jesus Christ is the means of our strength and faith. That as we consider this chapter, we're seeing Jesus, his person and his work. And as we see Jesus here on these pages, it is to strengthen our faith. In a life as hard, evil as real world, faith would be strengthened. So let's dig into that together. First, let's consider the person of Jesus Christ is glorious. And our first comparison is that between the king and the beast. Consider the king. He's glorious in our passage, 11 through 16. Let's walk through this. We're going to look at these in part and just take this all in. Just sort of absorb this as best as you can. We're getting a picture of the resurrected, reigning, ruling, and returning King Jesus. Not arriving in the flesh in the sense of the frailty of humanity, but arriving as the glorious King to conquer all. So let's think through what we find in these six verses. First, In the beginning part of 11, we find that heaven is opened. Then I saw heaven opened. God is peeling it all back. 
The curtain is drawn back. Here it is. This is the very end. This is the return of the king. And access and nearness to God is evident. He's here. This is the end. No more waiting. King Jesus is here. And what do we see? We see the rest of verse 11. A rider on a white horse. And behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. King Jesus at his return. Here he is. And he's described as one being faithful and true. King Jesus was called this in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. But now, that, that call was a description that went to the churches in the letter. But now, faithful and true, King Jesus is evident to all. All of heaven, all of earth, all of God's people, all of God's enemies. Everyone, everywhere sees King Jesus. And he comes righteous with righteous judgment and righteous war. He comes to fulfill all of God's redemptive purposes, every ounce of them, every last one. He's come to rescue, redeem, restore, remake. He's come to do it all. Psalm 96 verse 13 says, For He comes to judge the earth, He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. That verse is arriving now here in Revelation 19. And we keep going. It's overwhelming. I want to kind of move through it quickly just so that we feel overwhelmed by the glorious nature of the person of Jesus Christ. Next, we find in the beginning of verse 12 that his eyes are like fire. Verse 12 His eyes are like a flame of fire. And that symbolism, it means that he has penetrating sight. He sees and knows all. No one and nothing is hidden. There's no obstruction to his view. There's no limitation to what he knows. He sees it all. It's all laid bare. He's over all. And here he is. And then we find in the middle part of verse 12, that on his head are many diadems. On his head, he's wearing a victor's wreath. And and it's so immeasurably great. And then in the rest of verse 12, we find that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. It refers to, again, that fulfilling work that he has accomplished. Remember, he's the only one who can open the scroll. He's the only one who knows God's redemptive purposes. He's the only one. One who can do it. And it's a name that we are invited in to share because we belong to him. This is the king and he is back. And on that horse, not only is he these great and glorious things, but he also is wearing a robe that is dipped in blood. The beginning of verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Some commentators argue over, not argue, but debate over what that is referring to, what part of Christ's work. And some think it refers to the cross, but I disagree with that. I think it refers to the consummation of his victory over all of God's enemies. There's a very important passage in Isaiah, Old Testament prophecy, looking forward to this culminating moment in Isaiah 63 that has striking relevance to what we've read in this chapter. 
Isaiah 63, verse 3 says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Again, speaking to the overwhelming, unstoppable justice of God to all those who reject and rebel, all of his enemies, spiritual and and unseen to those who live out their lives in absolute rebellion against him. Sobering, absolutely. And yet this is part of Christ's fulfilling work when he returns. Verse 13 continues, and we find that um, he has a name by which he is called, the Word of God. Again, the Word of God, God in the flesh, it That expression speaks both back to creation in Genesis 1 and also to incarnation in John 1. This is him. This is he who took on our flesh. This is the word of God, the second person of the Trinity here, now, arrived, bringing victory. And he arrives not alone. He arrives with a great army. Look at verse 14. He is clothed, oh, sorry, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, White and pure were following him on white horses. This certainly could just be heavenly beings, or it could include the redeemed that we've already seen in Revelation chapter 7. Either way, it doesn't really matter. It's an overwhelming army. They're holy. They're set apart. But note, as we read through the rest of this chapter, this army does nothing. Lifts not a sword. Doesn't get off of the horse, doesn't take up a fight, does absolutely nothing but witness the victory of the king. So what then does that tell you about the rider on the white horse? Taking on the enormity of God's enemies, the enormity of a cabal of Spiritual and physical enemies of God and his people. One writer wins. Why? Well, what we find in verse 15. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, again, referring back to that Isaiah 63 passage, but note what it means. He spoke, and all of God's enemies lose. This king is glorious. And that's where it culminates in verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This here, this king, this rider on the white horse is King Jesus. He is the biggest deal ever. He has the highest authority, the greatest worthiness, the most overwhelming power. And that you who are trusting him, clinging to him, even if your clinging to him is weak and wobbly and shaky, that is your king. And his victory is sure because his glory is immense. 
And that's what we see next is, is that his glory is so overwhelming. And there's an important comparison that's, that's running here. That as you take in the letter as a whole, there have been other intimidating descriptions of God's enemies. One in particular, the beast. When you go back and look at Revelation 13 that describes the beast, and then you look at Revelation 19 describing the arriving King Jesus, you find very intentional comparisons. And those intentional comparisons are there so that you and I, our faith in King Jesus would be strengthened. That while we look at the beast and we think about the enemies of God, spiritual and unseen or seen, we can feel intimidated and overwhelming. We can feel as if we've got nothing to stand against such enemies until you then look to the one who has you, King Jesus. And that's what the comparison is to do for us. It is to help us see, yes, the enemies of God are great and overwhelming, but greater than them is the king who comes on the horse. And that's who you have, and that's who has you. So hold on. But Revelation 13, 10, 13, 1 through 10, does have interesting descriptions of the beasts that are outmatched by the descriptions of King Jesus. In Revelation 13, we see that the beast has a crown, but it's far less impressive. In verse 1 of 13, we see, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and with ten diadems on its horns. But Christ's crown is described as having many. It's almost so immeasurably greater. It would be silly to even try to compare the two when one is very specific and the other is described with with great uh, immeasurable qualities and character. Secondly, we see that in Revelation 13, the beast has names. And all of those names are blasphemous. Back in verse 1 of 13. And... On his head, blasphemous names on his head. Christ's names are faithful and true and word of God and King of King and Lord of Lords. That's all associated with his glory and with his fulfilling work of redemptive history. The names don't even compare. In Revelation 13, we see the beast spoke. And what did he speak but blasphemous words and Verse 5, and the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. What does Christ's mouth utter? Well, the words that bring justice and victory, fulfill God's purpose to God's glory and for the good of God's people. So whose word is more powerful? The enemies of God who seek to tear down and cut down God's people or the word of the reigning, ruling, returning king? And then fourthly, we see that the beast in Revelation 13 made war. But that war was much smaller in scope. Verse 7, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. But Christ, when he returns, makes war on a cosmic scale against all enemies, seen and unseen, and wins. And wins. This scene, this comparison between the beast and the king, all of it, the the scope by which we see the differences between King Jesus and the beast. It's all to strengthen our faith. To strengthen our faith. 
who you follow is greater than the world. So when he says, I am greater than the world, I've overcome the world. Revelation 19 is a, is a visual, visceral picture of that for you. When you feel threadbare, worn down, when you feel exhausted, trying to follow Christ in a world that offers a buffet of idolatry or a fierce opposition, look to the king. Look to the king, Jesus. The person of Jesus is glorious. Not only is the person of Jesus glorious, but the work of Jesus is victorious. Comparison two, there are two eschatological, which is just a big fancy word to say how it all ends, feasts. There are two how it all ends feasts. There are two feasts in this chapter that you are not to miss. The feast that we see here in the passage that we considered is an overwhelming. It's a feast of justice. So first of all, there's a call to the feast in verses 17 and 18 in Revelation 19. So in Revelation 19, there's a call to the feast. And I, I'm just struck by this because this is a remarkable moment. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. So King Jesus has an angelic hype man standing in the sun, booming out already victory. Before the war, the, the angel is booming out, come, birds, you're about to eat all of the victory of King Jesus. This is crazy. It drives me great. I'm thinking of a big, great boxing match, and there's this hype man as the, the, just announcing to the crowd and to all those who paid for the pay-per-view, hey, my guy's winning. You all get to see this. Come enjoy this. He's going to win. And here we have it. So certain was the victory. That this angelic hype man summoned the birds to gather for a feast. A feast of overwhelming victory. Look at verse 21. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all those birds did show up and were gorged with their flesh. The word of the rider on the white horse is greater than all the army. Enemy, armies of the enemies of God. A word fell them. Fell them all. What power. The work of Christ, friends. Hear this. Obviously, this is, a, this is very intense symbolism speaking to spiritual truths and realities and things that will come about when Christ comes. And it comes very soberly, but also with great certainty so as to encourage God's people. One of the things that we are encouraged here is that the work of Christ is not some hanging in the balance drama. Will the hero win? It looks so overwhelming. He's going to lose. I don't know. Is he going to be able to do it? Nothing about this portrayal gives that impression. In fact, it gives us great courage and strength to our faith that we are holding on to the one who wins. And there's no drama about it. So certain, so vast is his victory, none remain. All of the enemies of God become 
food for the feast of births. That's a sobering look at the end. We certainly find ourselves thinking about the end, either our life or the end of history as a glorious moment in which we move from faith to sight and into the presence of our God. And, and rightly so, and rightly so, there's another aspect of the very end, and that is all of God's enemies are vanquished. And that helps us see that this chapter lays that all out for us in the comparison of two feasts. There's the feast of birds gorging themselves over God's justice. And then there is the feast of the joy of heaven, which we considered last week. In verses 6 and 7 of Revelation 19, it says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And then later says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There is a significant difference between these two feasts. The difference between these two feasts is your relationship with the rider on the white horse. So you rebelling against that rider leads to utter defeat and brings you to the feast of birds. You looking to the one that's on the horse as the one who rescues you from your sin. You redeemed are led to an inexpressible joyous feast. And that means then for us right now, we don't, we're not living in the moment of Revelation 19. Jesus is currently reigning Jesus is currently ruling, and Jesus will one day be returning. But right now, he sent ahead a good news announcement. He sent peace terms with the returning king. It's called the gospel. It's called the gospel. It is the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's God, a sovereign God, graciously saving sinners from their sin by means of the sacrifice of his son, who lived a life that they could not live and died a death that they deserved and overcame enemies of the soul that they could never overcome so that all who look to that Savior, that Son, that Jesus, trusting in His life, death, and resurrection, all who look there through faith, saying that is sufficient for my redemption, will be saved. That is the peace terms of the returning King. When He arrives, the peace terms are off. And justice comes. I don't know your heart. I don't know all of your stories. I don't know if you are hardened toward God, but you're physically here or you're listening online. I implore you to take seriously the peace terms of the king. It is sure. It is sufficient. It is for your salvation. And I want to encourage you as you consider heavily those peace terms and the response of faith. Know that there will be a feast of joy when he returns. As we take this in, in this passage, we see the person of Jesus Christ is glorious. And we see the work of Jesus Christ is victorious. And when we look to that, we see the means of our faith to be strengthened. The means of strengthened faith 
are found when we look to the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's a third comparison implied along the way, throughout all of Revelation, honestly. And that third comparison is fear or faith. Fear or faith. When we look at the world around us, when we consider the fact that we live in a life is hard, evil is real world, there's plenty of things to make us feel overwhelmed. That fear grips us, grips our hearts. And as we consider what we just saw here in Revelation 19, my hope would be that it would strengthen you in the midst of that tension with fear. Strengthen your faith. Because fear does some things. Fear really ultimately misunderstands the circumstances. Fear misunderstands the circumstances. Yes, the opposition to God is great, but God is greater. Yes, life is hard and evil is real, but God is in control and Jesus wins. Fear wants you to misunderstand those circumstances and overvalue the things that are in a life is hard, evil is real world, and underestimate that God is in control and Jesus wins. As fear does that work in our heads and in our hearts, bringing about that misunderstanding to bear, it produces some things in us. First, fear produces anger. For some of us, Fear produces anger because we are not in control and we doubt God's ability or willingness to do anything about it. We're angry at the circumstances around us. We're angry at a hard world. We're angry at those who reject God because we're not in control. That fear shows up as anger. It can also show up as anxiety, spiritual anxiety. We look around and we think the circumstances around us seem so big that we doubt God's ability or presence in the midst of them. We misunderstand the circumstances and fear brings about spiritual anxiety. Thirdly, fear can produce in us apprehension. That we are frozen in place, unwilling to bear the cost of belonging to Jesus, unwilling to take on the call to announce the peace terms that the gospel is to the world around us. We are landlocked, frozen because of fear, manifesting as apprehension. So you and I, we desperately need in our day and age to keep looking to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That as we do, it strengthens our faith. Because there are plenty of things in our lives and in our circumstances and in our world to produce fear. Whether that fear leads to anger, anxiety, or apprehension, or some sort of Molotov cocktail of all three. The looking to Jesus, His person and work, is our means of strength and faith. And that is just what we find. Faith rests in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And therefore, faith produces in us, first of all, composure instead of anger. Composure in this life is hard, evil is real world. When we look to the person and work of Christ, we gain the needed perspective to live out our lives in this adulterous, evil world, knowing that the culminating work of Christ is sure 
and sufficient and strong. Gives us composure in a volatile world. Secondly, it gives us confidence instead of anxiety. A strengthened faith that is looking to the person and work of Christ gives us confidence. Instead of sinking down in overwhelming circumstances or seeing doubt flood the chamber of our hearts, a, a constant rhythm of looking to the person and work of Christ stabilizes our hearts while we ride the tide and waves of this world. That doesn't mean there won't be reasons that we won't wrestle with anxiety or that some of us won't wrestle with anxiety more intensely than others. And that's certainly not a, you know, take this generic statement, confidence instead of anxiety, and you'll feel better in the morning. Anxiety is certainly a complex issue. But my focus and intention here is revolving around spiritual anxiety that rises up in our hearts as we wrestle with doubt. So, the antidote to doubt is to keep looking at the sufficiency of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Keep considering, keep rehearsing, keep speaking, keep singing, keep praying, keep trusting, keep looking. He is sufficient, my friends. Thirdly, faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ produces in us courage instead of apprehension. Rather than retreating into a cul-de-sac of Christendom or stuck in some form of inactivity. We are emboldened all the more to make much of Jesus as we look at Jesus. We are emboldened all the more to have family luau's and to be a part of community events that our city is putting together and to calling our neighborhood to VBSs and wanting to connect with families and adults and people. We can be emboldened with courage instead of apprehension because when we look to Jesus, we see the victor. We see the greatest, most glorious one of all who is greater than all that we will face. And therefore, we have courage to make much of him. These comparisons that we find in this chapter and in this book and in the Bible as a whole, Jesus Jesus is greater than the beast. He is greater than all of God's opposition. There are two feasts that will wrap up human history. One is of great joy and one is of great justice. And when we look to the person and work of Christ, we see one glorious and victorious. And that is the means of our strength. So, a life is hard. Evil is real world is overwhelming. If we stood before the enemies of God in this scene, like the rider on the white horse, we would buckle and fall under the ominous magnitude of it all. Yet, look to the king. Look to the one on that white horse. And fear not, for in him we have a faith-fueled composure and a confident courage to live for the king. In a life is hard, evil is real world. May our faith be strengthened as we do. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you reveal to us your purposes. And those culminate in the person and work of Christ, both in our salvation and in the bringing in of your kingdom. Where justice and peace will reign. 
God, give us strength now in our lives as we face many circumstances that would pull us to fear, either in anger or anxiety or apprehension. And instead, God, as we look to you and as we look to the rider on the white horse, as we look to our king, God, may our faith be strengthened. May we be strengthened with composure, confidence, and courage to live for you now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.